hope everyone is doing well. My name is Matt. If you don't know me, the pastor here at Liberty Church. Hope you're enjoying the service uh, so far. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to find the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, don't worry if you don't have one. The words will appear as if by magic uh, on the screen beside me. Before we start, I just wanted to recommend a book to you that uh, Joe and I have both been working through. We're not quite finished yet. I think we've both caught up to where each other was. So you overtook me now. Joe's slightly further along. We're nearly finished. The book is called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. If you've ever read any books by Michael Reeves, he's a, a wonderful, big, clear thinker but writes in really simple, accessible language. It's a really short book. It's only eight chapters, about 150 pages. So you could read it just in a few days if you wanted to. And uh, it's about the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord, which is the subject to which we are going to be speaking on today. So, Rich, can you catch this? I'll throw this in your direction. Here we go. That's not for you, though, because I haven't finished reading it. But that was just for you to catch. We've been going through this rather unusual book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Uh, we've called this series as we've been walking through it, Wisdom for a World that Refuses to Make Sense. And today we're coming into the end of the book, just the last few verses. Um, the author Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, he called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books in that it's a very real, honest book that it talks about the pressures of life. It talks about what it is to live through the world. And the writer, as he goes through it, sort of takes this vantage point of exploring all the different experiences of life, all that life can offer. And he starts the book by saying, vanity of vanity, Everything is vanity. And also last week we discovered in chapter 12, he also sort of brings a conclusion to the book by saying the same thing. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this idea of vanity, of this life is essentially just a vapor that as soon as we feel like we've grasped it, it moves away from us. That life, time, money, everything moves quicker, moves out of our control, moves beyond how we can manage it. And if anything, life under the sun, this expression Ecclesiastes uses all again, life under the sun without God struggles to have any meaning, any purpose. But with God is completely transformed. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus just on the last five verses, which sort of give like a summary of everything he's been saying and a conclusion, something for us to work on, a, an action, something for us to do. So let me just read from verse 9 of chapter 12. He says this, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me pray. Jesus, we pray as we unpack these ancient words to us today that they would speak relevant, powerful truth for our life today. We thank you that's what your word does. It speaks into our here and now and brings life, hope and joy. And we pray that that would very much happen for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a, a book written that I read a few years ago about, uh, about Rembrandt, the famous Dutch artist by uh, Simon Sharma, who's a, who's a historian. And the purpose of the book was to try and give a, a background, to try and explain the world in which Rembrandt lived that would have shaped how he thought, shapes the artwork he produced. The book was called Rembrandt's Eyes. And in part of this book, he, he talks about our city. He talks about Amsterdam. He, he tries to paint this picture of what the city would have been like at the time and how that would have affected, how it shaped, how he as this great artist drew his many great works and paintings. And within that, the writer talks about the influence that religion that the church would have had at the time. And he, he wrote this in a little description about, as he's trying to paint this picture of what the city is like. He says, the preacher himself would mount the pulpit and with the fire of Amos and Micah, Ezekiel and Paul and John the Evangelist, thinning his lungs with holy heat, bellow sulfurious imprecations at the stiff-necked transgressors for hours on end. That's how he described the church in our city in the 17th century of hours of thunder and wrath. And maybe, maybe that's a little bit what you heard, particularly when I read those last two verses, particularly if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're watching at home. And when I say words like fear God, keep his commandments, when we talk about things like duty and judgment, those words sound very negative. They sound like the sort of words that should be shouted from a pulpit by an angry preacher. And maybe, maybe that's what I should do for the next, next few hours. But often that's, that's what you hear in your heart when you hear those words. You just think, oh, this is, you know, we've been, maybe you've been watching for a few weeks and you think, oh, finally, finally the truth is revealed of what these people actually believe is they just want to tell me how bad I am. They just want to tell me how much of a mess I am. They just want to shout angry words at me. Or maybe when you heard me speak those words and read those verses, maybe if you're a believer in Jesus, that concept of fearing God, maybe you're just struggling to get your head around that because you think, well, surely it says 
in 1 John that there's no fear in love, that perfect love casts out fear, that we don't need to fear anymore because of the love, the love of Jesus. And what I want to help us to see today is that the way that the Bible describes this idea of fear is that there's a, in a sense, there's a good bit fear and there's a, there's a bad fear. At least in how we respond to God. There's a fear in response to God, which is as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, that they're, they're terrified and they, they hide. They, they turn away from God. A sinful fear which makes us think that we can't be near God, that we need to turn our backs, we need to close off our hearts, that we need to walk away. But there's also another sort of fear that's one of worshipful awe and reverence. Let me give you a couple of examples from this, from the Bible about this. First of all, in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses has delivered to the people of God the Ten Commandments, and the, the, they look up at Mount Sinai, and there's these flashes of lightning. They can hear the sound of the trumpet. It says the people were afraid, and they trembled. And Moses says to them a really fascinating thing. He says to them, do not fear. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So he seems to be saying to them, don't fear so that you can fear. He's saying to them, don't, don't turn away and hide from God in this sort of sinful fear, but actually come to God in worship. There's a sort of a negative and a positive fear. Let me give you... Another example from the book, of, the book of Jonah, the famous story of Jonah where he, uh, he tries to run away from God's plan. He's on this boat, a storm hits, he jumps out and he's swallowed by a fish. And the, the crew of the boat in verse 10 of chapter one of Jonah, it says that they were exceedingly afraid. They say to Jonah, what have you done to us? They're fearful. They don't know what to do. This storm's crashing all around them. They're fearful for their lives. They're fearful that the wrath of God is about to just wipe them out. And then Moses jumps off and the storm uh, dissipates. And then verse 16, a few verses later, it says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to him. Again, you get this picture of these two different types of fear. There's one where they're just terrified and they just want to run away from God. And another where they come to God with just worship and reverence and say, God, I, I just want to follow you. I want to give my life as a, a sacrifice of worship towards you. An illustration from that book I recommended is that you can, if you imagine a, a soldier preparing to go into a, to battle. He's, the war is coming. You can imagine if you were in the army, that sense of just fear and trembling that you know, literally leaves your legs 
quaking. I don't know if you've ever been in a similar situation where you've been so afraid. Maybe you're about to walk into a, a job interview or your, your first day at university, that sort of fear that, that sort of cripples you, that leaves you sort of trembling, you're so anxious about it. A sense of fear that a soldier might have, knowing his, his life is in imminent danger. But then you can, you can experience the same almost sort of physical trembling of fear. For instance, if you were a, a bridegroom at a wedding and you're waiting for your wife to walk down the aisle and you can, you can feel that sense of just, oh goodness, this is a, this is a big moment. <laughs> and here she comes. And you can, the, 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 in a sense, a, a good fear can fill you of a fear of, I want to do this marriage well, I want to love my wife well, doesn't she look amazing? And in both occasions, you can, you can tremble, but for different reasons. There's a different sort of fear that can overtake us. See, there's a, there's a good fear, which in a sense, we experience through a, a kind of mixture of friendship and fear with God. If you think about, for instance, the power of nature, we're aware of the power of, of wind, the power of water, the power of fire. These sort of elements of nature we, we know are, are dangerous, as we've seen this week in the south of our country, that water can be incredibly dangerous. And yet it's a gift to us that, that benefits our life all the time. You know, without water, we're not going to live for very long. The same with, with fire. It's, it, it heats our homes. It, it fills our, it cooks our food. All the time, every day, we're using fire to, to help us, using heat to benefit us. But at the same time, we know it's, it's dangerous. You can't put your hand on the hob. You can't put your hand into the flames. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you. And we can, we can come to God in the in the same way it talks about in the, book of, in the book of Hebrews, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's how we can approach God. We approach him as, as our friend, as our father, but we approach God knowing he's a consuming fire. He's a holy God. And that's not something to make us run away in fear, but it's to make us come to him with just reverence and worship. Another way to understand this kind of good fear is, it talks about in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays that God may give him and his people a, a delight to fear your name. A delight to fear your name. J Jesus himself talks about it in John 14. And he seems to almost quote these words from Ecclesiastes. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We read here in Ecclesiastes that fear God and keep his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep your, my commandments. And Jesus isn't saying, oh, forget about, forget about fear. It's all about love instead. What the Bible is trying to tell us is that, in a sense, this is the same thing, that to delight in God, to, 
love God causes you to, to want to fear him in a good way, that you just want to follow him, and that you just want to love him, you want to live your life in worshipful obedience to him. The Westminster Confession, one of the great catechisms that, that outlines the Christian faith, it starts with this question right at the very beginning. It asks, what is the chief end of humankind? What is our number one purpose? Which is the same question Ecclesiastes asks us here. It says that the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments, the whole duty. It's the same question. What's our whole duty? What's our chief end? The Westminster Confession says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in giving Jesus glory, we not just learn to know God, but we get to enjoy him. This idea of, of loving God and fearing God, of taking delight in him and fearing him, of enjoying him and fearing him, it's, it's all the same thing. If you really want to enjoy the benefits of what it is of knowing God as your father, then you live lives of fearful worship towards him. In, in Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, but it's also the beginning of joy. Because that's what wisdom is supposed to do. That's what all this, this wisdom in this book of Ecclesiastes, it's all designed to bring you joy. That's what this book is about, is to help us to see God and to help us help you to live lives of just joyful worship, knowing that it's just the best way to live when you offer your life as a living sacrifice to him, when you choose to follow him no matter what the cost, you open your life up to the possibility of unending joy and receiving all his goodness. And this idea of fear is obviously a, a very important subject because it's something that perhaps you struggle with perhaps not in relation to God, but when you think about the world around us, the situations many of us have had to live through over the last 18 months, but perhaps through all of your life, perhaps you know many instances of, of fear. And a big question you have is, well, how do I overcome this? You know, we live in a, uh, what's often described as, a, as an age of anxiety where this corona season just seems to have amplified that more and more. And the great, one of the great promises of our age of a city like this, a city that, that claims to be one of the most secular cities on the planet, by that I mean to be secular is to be without God. A city, a society that has said, we don't, we don't need God anymore. A city that, that has read those words about Rembrandt and said, I don't, I don't, we don't need religion that just shouts at us, that just tells us what to do. That, that's where fear comes from, is by preachers, is by people just shout, is by books that just tell us how to live. We, ju we just need to get rid of that. We need to get rid of that silly idea of fearing God and then we'll find liberty, we'll find life. That's the sort of secular promise of our age. 
that if you can just abandon all that religious, God-fearing nonsense, then you'll find happiness. And yet I think if we look around our city, so much of which I love, even if you investigate your own heart, I think we have to acknowledge that trying to live life without God, which is this picture that Ecclesiastes has painted for us chapter after chapter, trying to live life without God won't alleviate your fear. It won't rid you of anxiety. It's not the answer. It's not the golden ticket, the silver bullet. This idea that you can have a a city that just gets all the best from abandoning God just isn't true. It just isn't. See, because if you remove the fear of God from your life, and by that I mean the good, appropriate, worshipful, delightful fear of God, if you remove that from your life, you don't just remove fear full stop. It just means you'll fear other things instead. Or even more of a problem, you'll fear everything instead. That's so often the the anxiety that people feel around us is they just fear everything. Any any challenge that comes up, they just when when you don't have a sovereign God who's in control of all things, when you are the master of your own fate, when you control your own destiny, that's an awful lot of responsibility to put on your shoulders. And that's why people give in to fear and anxiety because it's, it's too much for people to deal with. It's too much for people to bear. And what we do is we, we attempt to, to cure ourselves of this fear and anxiety. We attempt to cure ourselves with, with more information. If I can just understand what's, what's happening, I can make better decisions. If I could just understand, if I could just diagnose what the problem is, I can fix it. If I can just get an inkling of a way through of what's going to happen. But you can't doom scroll yourself to wisdom. You can't. Social media won't have the answers. At the end of the day, what social media often does is it it just introduces you to more and more problems of which you don't have the solution for. And the more you realize that there's these things happening which are out of control, which everybody's anxious about, which everybody's fearful with, that no one knows the answers to, you feel the pressure and the weight of that, and it leads to what this passage here describes as weariness. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. That if you try and find the answers in just reading more books, of just getting more information into you, of better education, ultimately if that alone is the answer, it will just lead to weariness. 2 Timothy in the New Testament puts it like this, that we'll be always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So how do we overcome the fear of the world around us? Because it might sound as though what I'm suggesting is a kind of an anti-intellectualism of let's forget books and learning. You know, you don't need to read anything. 
just trust God and, and forget, forget, you know, just you don't need to, words, what's the point of those? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. There is much good in study. There's much good in education which helps us to solve problems. There is wonderful good in that. But if that is your only hope, if that's your way of getting through and solving the problem of your heart, of solving the problem of fear in your life, then you'll struggle. Let me give you a simple answer, which might sound complex and it's working out, but how to overcome the fear of the world around us. In a sense, it's, it's, the, it's the Sunday school children's answer, is come to Jesus. Just lean into the wonder of who he is. The wonder of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The African theologian from many, many years ago, Augustine said, love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. When you, what the point he's trying to make to us, he's not saying forget fearing God and keeping his commandments. He's saying when, when you fix your, the desire of your heart in love to Jesus and who he is, you'll, you'll want to follow him. In, in the things, in doing whatever you please, those things will be following Jesus, serving him in his kingdom. And we, he's given us this, this book. He's given us all the wisdom here. That's what the, the writer's trying to talk about when he tells us that the words of the wise are like goads. It's like a, like a stick that a shepherd would use to prod a sheep. And the words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed. And they're given by one shepherd. That's what it says here, that we have a father in heaven a good shepherd who sometimes will use his truth to, by his grace to, to prompt us. And when you feel that prompting, follow that. And also he uses the truth as like nails firmly fixed. This is, imagine the like, like tent pegs whacked into the ground that provide a, a covering, a, a shelter, a refuge. When you live your life on the word of God, it becomes a, a refuge. It, it becomes something fixed and permanent, somewhere safe where you know what's really true. See, the fear of the Lord is the only fear in the world that actually imparts strength. When you learn to fear God with your heart, it gives life. It gives strength. You can take on the challenges of the world when you know the one who you're fearing is the God of all creation, the sovereign God who's in control of all things. Why am I going to fear what that person thinks of me when I know that my Father in heaven loves me? <laughs> that, that's what we're talking about. That's the right kind of fear. I want to go his way because he loves me. Who cares what that person thinks? Now, 
the final question which we shouldn't ignore because you'll have noticed in this passage he finishes off by saying fear God keep his commandments this is the whole duty of man and then verse 14 which is how he ends the whole book for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil and maybe that's something that you fear maybe you're a follower of Jesus maybe you're not but you hear this idea of judgment maybe that's what you fear you've never spoken out you've never really told anyone but deep in your heart when you consider that when you think of every secret thing whether good or evil being brought into the light that causes your heart to quake a little talks in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 about this because you see this isn't just something that something that appears just in this book but it's through the whole Bible it says in 2 Corinthians 5 let me just find the verse sorry sweaty fingers We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And again, you read verses like that, that with every secret thing, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that leads you to fear. What do we do about that kind of fear? So it's important to understand that, again, the judgment of God sounds like a horrible, bad, negative thing. But if you really think about it, the judgment of God is a good thing. See, judgment is to establish what is right, to establish what is good, what is just, what should be. And anything, Jesus coming to judge the world is the same. You might sit around with your friends and have a drink and put the world to rights. And that's what Jesus is ultimately coming to do, to put the world to rights. Is when we see evil and injustice and pain in our world and we think, what's going to happen about that? We can know that there is an answer. There, there is something will happen about those things. That those who commit horrendous acts of evil, that they won't get away with it. That there is an answer, a solution, a justice that's coming. But we're also aware of the sin of the secret things in our own hearts and lives. You see, you have to understand that although this might sound like cold, harsh, angry language, we have a Father in heaven, we have a Saviour, Jesus Christ, who weeps over brokenness. Who sees the pain and the suffering. Who sees the sin in our lives. And has a, a desire to fix it. To make it right. To give us an answer. So should we fear it? Well as believers in Jesus. The book of Titus tells us to wait eagerly for our blessed hope. 
that the judgment of God is a blessed hope. You see, because Jesus comes as both our judge, but also our advocate. He comes as a shepherd, but also the lamb. Jesus came to stand in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve to take upon himself, the punishment that we deserved. He bore the wrath of that for our sins. See, the, the, the only one who could be against us is for us. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's the good news of the Bible. That the judge of all history, the only one who could stand against us, the only one who could bring justice and judgment, he's, he's for you. He's for us. Because sin, sin's horrible. It deserves punishment. And that's why Jesus died. That the record of debt which stood against us might be cancelled. And in John chapter 5, it says this. This is Jesus speaking to us again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we won't receive the punishment that we should receive. We'll just receive the overwhelming grace of God and his mercy and kindness towards us. There's nothing to fear there for us. See, when we consider the holiness of God, this concept of fearing God, it's one of just pure delight. Because the story for us in Christ is full of good news. Let me pray for us and join the band or lead us in worship. Father, we, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a God of, of all sovereign power and might. And we want to live lives that, that fear you. Not lives that cower away, that hide, but lives that, that come to you and say, God, this is, this is me, this is who I am. I'm one who's received the love of Jesus, who's received the righteousness of Jesus, who's been made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that eagerly awaits a blessed hope because of his wonderful good news. And that right now, it means we can, we can walk in freedom and liberty through all the struggles, all the ups and downs in life. We know we have a savior who's for us. We know that there's, there's one great hope for all of us that we can fear you. And the more we fear you, the more all the the other fears of life begin to quiet down. All the other heckles and shouts from the world around us, they lose their volume, they lose their power when we fix our eyes on you. And we want, we want this love of you to just transform our hearts, that our desire would be to follow you no matter what the cost. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for all you've done for us. Amen.